Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Hi guys. So I'm Amber Kenyon. Uh, I'm the extension officer, outreach officer here at Gateway Research Organization. I get the privilege of bringing you Lee Dehan who is with the Land Institute. And for those of you who don't know, the Land Institute is out of the States. They are the people who have bred Kernza. So Kernza is a perennial wheat. Um, we're really excited about it. We've seen some crazy pictures about root systems that are like about this, like really, I, I can't really show, it won't show, um, but they're incredibly deep. And so the stuff that that can do for your soil, like that's that's incredible. We're really excited about this. Currently Kearns is being used to make beer and wheat down in the, or beer and bread down in the States. Um, so it, we're excited to try this in our local area and see how well it grows and, and kind of get to know. We're also trialing ACE1 perennial rye. So with the whole perennial grain thing in mind, we're, we're excited to be able to introduce Lee to hand. All right, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, great to be here to talk to you. I hear you guys have planted a little bit of kerns up there in, in Alberta. So um, happy to talk to you about my work and uh, why we're doing it. Um, this is a kerns field in Minnesota, actually where I come from. Um, I'm gonna tell you what, what I'm gonna talk about first. So. Um, First of all, why are we working on these perennial grain crops? Um, and then why this, it's thin alpyrum intermediate. So a lot of you probably heard of intermediate wheatgrass. I know there's been a fair bit of intermediate wheatgrass produced um, in years gone by in, in Canada. It was a major producing region for the, the seed of this forage crop. Um, we've begun breeding it for use as a grain crop where we'll eat the seeds instead. And uh, for that end, gave it a new name because it was confusing people with intermediate and wheat and grass. Um, all of it were confusing. So we uh, came up with a name we just made up. Um, we thought it sounded a little bit grainy like a kernel. Um, it has a Z in it because it's memorable. So Kernza is our name to sell uh, intermediate wheatgrass seed under, right? Um, and hopefully keep it clear for everybody. Um, then I'll talk about what the path to a new grain crop would be like, um, how we've been working on domesticating uh, intermediate wheatgrass or Kernza, and how can we go even faster in that process? This is where I, uh, my, my father actually uh, working in the field in southern Minnesota, where I grew up. Um, I spent a lot of time on, on this tractor and other orange tractors like it. I know my father was uh, really particular about the color of his tractors. You probably understand that. Um, but so we we spent a lot of time tilling, and uh, that's a big part of, of annual grain agriculture, at least uh, before no-till became popular in many areas. Um, and tillage and, and the growing of annual grain crops um, has a long history of not working out well for, for humans. Um, here's a dramatic picture of the Lost Plateau in, in China. So this is uh, super rich soil. It's about like the, the soil of Iowa originally. Um, a very high quality soil used for growing wheat. And uh, after hundreds of years of that, um, it basically doesn't grow anything anymore, but I've heard there's reforestation efforts and, and things underway to start reclaiming this area again to make it productive. But um, with, without uh, intending to or uh, understanding what we were doing as humans, we've often uh, ended up degrading the, the cropland that we depend upon. Um, we've had uh, some good, uh, movements in the right direction in recent years of reducing tillage. Um, 
and of conservation tillage. My father was, was one of the earlier adopters of those, those approaches. Uh, but we understand that those, those things are not um, the full solution, that there's still um, unsustainable erosion happening, even under conservation approaches, and there's other, other problems from, from those systems. So um, the idea of growing perennial plants, I'm going to go through like why, uh, essentially, why do we think this is, would be a good uh, approach to solve um, problems that we've faced in agriculture for, for thousands of years, really. I'd like to introduce this kind of ecological aspect here by uh, looking at a famous photo from my childhood, which before and after Mount St. Helens erupted. And uh, interesting to see uh, how these trees were all growing. And then the next week, um, all the trees were gone. We have bare soil. Uh, this picture, probably a year or two later, we have these annual uh, weeds, uh, annual plants starting to, to come back in and grow. Um, after that landscape was, was totally cleaned off by the eruption of the volcano. Um, so this is something that's fairly rare in nature, but does happen on a large scale with a volcano and small scale with buffalo wallows, um, uh, rivers uh, going out of their banks and flooding, uh, wiping out uh, certain areas of all plant life, and then annual weeds come in uh, for a while and, and eventually are replaced by other kinds of plants. Um, as you look at that same region here, 20, 30 years later, you see the trees are now coming back um, into that, that area. And that, this is a process that we call um, ecological succession. So um, after this disturbance event, where uh, it might be something that uh, a fire or a flood or um, a tillage event that wipes out all existing uh, plants, eventually um, annual plants return to that site and then slightly longer lived plants will take hold and they'll start to outcompete those, those annual, we might call weeds. Um, if that's not continually disturbed by drought or fire, eventually shrubs may start to come in and then larger trees and then longer and longer lived trees. Um, this is a succession of species and types of species that live in an area. And what we see is that these plants that come in later after the annuals um, have larger root systems that live for longer times and, and they start competing aggressively with each other. So um, that's not really a good thing for any individual plant there. They, they start to fight with each other for the resources underground. They're trying to get the, the water, they're trying to get the nutrients. And the kind of uh, in, surprising end result of that in say a prairie system, uh, like the central uh, North American region of, of native prairie, um, we see that uh, plants that grow lots of roots to, to compete below ground, eventually those roots decompose and we start to get lots of soil organic matter and soil carbon. We build a very, very rich soil um, as a result of that uh, competition between long-lived plants. Um, so we get into the longer-lived, uh, larger trees that start to compete above ground and we get most of that carbon actually be becoming above ground and there's not quite as much as soil carbon building in, in those systems. It's, it's more in the trunks of trees as they compete with each other in that way. So uh, in Kansas, we were in the tall grass prairie region and um, the native condition is as you see here in the top. Um, <clears throat> and what we've done with introducing ag agriculture in this region, uh, particularly grain agriculture is to, to till that um, at least once a year, sometimes two or three or four times per year uh, to, to wipe out the, the 
the long-lived plants or other invading plants and then replace it with those ones that we like. And these were the ancient weeds. So wheat, rye, barley, oats, um, rice. These were sort of the ancient weeds that were invading places, disturbed where there's lots of nutrients available. And these are the kind of plants that are gonna make a lot of seed because that's how they, they propagate themselves and invade a new area. Um, those were obvious choices for humans to start picking and eating. And as we started to pick and eat them and drop them on the ground, we discovered that disturbing larger and larger areas allowed them more space to grow. Um, we, we just spread disturbance across the globe really as a way to increase food production. Very logical. Um, but as we've seen, uh, has often not lasted uh, for more than a, a few hundred or uh, a thousand years at most. So because of the undermining of the, the soil quality over time, we've had fertilizers recently to help um, keep the system going. And that certainly has boosted uh, yields despite uh, sometimes underlying decreases in soil organic matter and soil quality. Uh, so we look to this, this prairie system and, and see what's happening below ground, um, get excited about uh, understanding why these uh, plants were thriving and, and uh, growing large root systems and uh, what the effect that had on uh, building this deep, rich, dark, high organic matter soil you see here. Um, so we've done some, some comparisons of growing intermediate wheatgrass, um, a forage, introduced forage grass uh, in Comparison to, to wheat, this is side by side in the same field. You can see the abundant uh, root systems here. Uh, we got some data to show you a little bit later how much that is, but it's, it's very obvious, a very, very different kind of a system um, and the impacts that that might have. I'll show you just a little bit of, of data about what that, that means in terms of how these, these systems function. So here, here is a comparison of a conventional fertilizer-based system and an organic system on the bottom. And we have intermediate wheatgrass in purple and wheat, sorry, intermediate wheatgrass in green and wheat in purple here at the top. This is the amount of nitrogen, nitrate nitrogen that's leaching below those two systems. Um, perhaps in your region, maybe not a, a huge issue. You're not getting a lot of water moving through your system, but in uh, Minnesota, Iowa, uh, the Mississippi River Basin where I come from, uh, loss of nitrogen out of the system is a, a very big issue for farmers uh, because they're losing uh, over half of the nitrogen that they put on that uh, crop is, is being lost uh, out of it, the system. So it's a, a huge economic issue for them. But it's also a system or a, a, an issue for rural communities. So um, that nitrogen has moved into the, the groundwater of small towns throughout the region. And uh, now they're actually uh, providing some land for free. Uh, Several of these cities are uh, asking us to, to experiment with growing Kernza on these, these areas to protect their, their wells from further contamination because they're looking at expending huge amounts of money to try to get that nitrogen back out of the water to make it drinkable. Um, so a big issue for a lot of reasons is to try to keep nitrogen in the field and usable by the plants. And so what we find with, with perennial grasses that um, more than 90% is actually taken up by the crop or, and not lost. Um, from the field as it is with the annual crop. Um, same thing uh, with, with the difference between a total uh, root biomass between it. Here again, it's wheat on the left and uh, intermediate wheatgrass or kerns on the right under a few different types of growing systems. 
And no matter what, it's it's uh, four to six times uh, more biomass uh, in these perennial crops. And that introduction of, of organic matter or root matter um, is basically taking carbon out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis, putting it below ground. Um, with these big root system, as mentioned, was mentioned, uh, the photos we have, this is about 10 feet long, uh, I guess three meters, if you like the metric system, um, deep in the soil. Uh, and that uh, root system delivers this, this carbon below ground, which is good for sequestering carbon, keeping it out of the atmosphere, and really good for building soil uh, quality. Um, this is just a, an illustration of all the stuff that goes on um, with soil biology. And soil biology is, is feeding on uh, what goes into the soil, which is mostly uh, root-derived carbon moving into that soil that, that drives all of these kinds of things that eventually uh, influence the crop growing in the field. So um, wonderful what perennials can do in terms of soil, uh, but humans got to eat. And uh, so uh, right now we don't have a lot of good options except for grazing cattle, which I see Steve has some grazing cattle behind him there. That's, that's excellent. Um, and we can eat the cattle that eat, that eat the grass and it works really well. Um, but it tends to be an inefficient or energetically kind of system. So um, if we could eat those plants directly, uh, we can get a lot more food to, to humans. And so we're, the, the consideration I have here is um, Kernza is producing just as much or more above ground biomass. So it's, uh, it's growing lots of leaves and stems, but it's not making all that much grain. And uh, humans can't digest those leaves and stems well. And so what my job is as a plant breeder is to, to coax those plants into putting a whole lot more of their available resources into grain that we can eat. Um, it's a little bit tricky because as you saw in my earlier slides on succession, these perennial plants like to fight with each other with their root systems or their stems. Um, they're, they're adapted to living in one place and, and, and going at it in terms of competition with their vegetative growth. And they don't compete by making much seed. So we have to change the game for them. We have to uh, pick those ones that make more seed and continue to live longer, something nature has really never done. Uh, but we believe that changing those rules can give us that, that kind of system that um, would actually produce abundant grain from a plant that lives for a long time. So I'm gonna talk about how we're gonna go about that and uh, the progress we're making so far. So this is an early feel of, of of Kearns being produced over 10 years ago, a local farmer. Um, I had a collaborative project with him and uh, it was the first time ever we tried to drive this combine through the field. He had no idea if it would work. I didn't know if it would work, <clears throat> but we were very excited when we got uh, a semi full of grain and then we had to figure out what to do with it. And uh, um, we, we figured out some stuff later as I'll show you. And we also have a lot of residue afterward. And um, this is one of the key parts to this system working right now is that it's not just a grain-based system. We can also um, feed the residue to cattle and um, have it uh, low quality in terms of hay, but it's not like wheat straw. So you can see the green material still there. We have a medium quality um, cattle feed as well off the system, which is part of what makes it a viable, even close to being viable at this point. Um, we're able to take some of that grain and, and bring it to an organic mill in Kansas and they, they milled it into flour. And then I started passing around to people. This is a well-known baker in Kansas and he made a, a good loaf of bread with 
a kerns of flour in it. He was very excited about it. Um, so we we got um, you know, to begin thinking. It's about twelve years ago. Hey, we could actually this this could be something that actually tastes okay and people can use. Um, not long after that, we were approached by a company called Patagonia Provisions and a, a brewing company in Portland, Oregon. And they um, worked for many years to, to develop a, a beer that they could sell in the market. And uh, since then, there's been several other uh, beers made in, in Minnesota and other places around the country. Um, would not be what I expected as the first thing to make, but it's it makes sense when you're, you're talking about how highly processed a beer is. So you can take something that is um, you know, grown in many different environments and has a range of kinds of qualities, but when you put it in 20% into a beer, the, the processing involved in that um, can, can just smooth out a lot of the differences between the grain sources. Um, and also it's a, an easy to market product that you can tell your story, you can tell it right on the can and um, relatively high value so that the relatively high cost of the, the lower yielding grain uh, made the, the price still work out for everybody. So um, beer has been an easier thing to do than I ever imagined it, it would be um, as a way to, to develop and just let the public know about a new crop. Um, many other products have been grown or, or produced uh, locally, breads. Um, here's a picture of noodles that were produced in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, sold locally there. Um, um, and there's, if you go on amazon.com right now, you'll, you'll find uh, there's kerns of flour and kerns of grain available for sale on, on Amazon. So um, it's at a very high price, I'll tell you, but it is available. <laughs> so uh, you can, you can uh, we finally have now a kind of commercial source that people, if they're interested, they can experiment in their own home kitchens. Um, there's been just a lot of people asking me for it over the years. And so it's exciting to see it coming out. Um, I'm going to quickly show you a little bit of a, um, timeline of, of the, the work and how we got to the point we are today. I uh, haven't updated in the last five years or so, but um, back in the 1932 is when um, intermediate wheatgrass was introduced from Southern Russia, the, the Caucasus mountain regions, um, also comes from Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Turkey. Um, it was brought to the, to the US as a forage uh, crop and um, wasn't used much until the 50s, 60s, there were some forage varieties released. Um, seed was produced and farmers started buying and planting it, um, especially in the, the central and western United States. Um, I don't know the Canadian history as much, except that I do know that there is quite a bit of historically uh, seed production also in Canada. So I imagine that it's it has been grown in the past. It was more popular here during what we call our CRP program. Um, being the, the heyday of that, the Conservation Reserve Program, the government sponsored planting of perennial grasses. As that has declined, um, the market also went down. There's not as much being produced. Um, so then the, the 80s, the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania um, was in conversation with the Land Institute and got excited about developing a perennial grain. They, they picked intermediate wheatgrass as, as the, the crop they wanted to work on. Um, it, then collaborated with the USDA, uh, US Department of Agriculture, and, and did uh, two cycles of selection in the 1990s through about 2000. Um, I came on the scene about 2001. I'd known about perennial grain since I was actually a kid. My dad had heard the founder of the Land Institute speak um, in the 80s, and I'd been excited about the idea of, of developing perennial grains ever since then. 
Um, never imagined it would, it would be something I'd actually be able to do, but dreams do come true in this case. And I ended up coming here in 2001 um, and began working with this crop alongside perennial wheat. So a different thing, really perennial wheat, where we were trying to add perennial genes into uh, wheat, sort of to make something that looks like wheat, but is a perennial. In this case, we're just domestic, domesticating the wild grass. Um, we still have that perennial wheat program going. It's going quite well, but it's not what I'm talking to you about today. Um, so uh, then uh, I started to work for about 10 years. Uh, about 2010, I passed uh, seed on to the University of Minnesota and also Doug Katani at the University of Manitoba. Some of you may be familiar with this program there. Um, we helped kind of jumpstart that, that program in Manitoba. And uh, then really around uh, 2015 and thereabouts when the, the beer came out in 2017, we began having some coordination of farmers planting and helping them to market. And then a couple of years ago, actually the Land Institute uh, hired our first uh, commercialization manager. So we, Tessa Peters came on board to, to help uh, farmers connect with us and connect with each other and um, processors and, and buyers as well. Um, the next slide is really some data that she's put together of just inquiries that we got um, over about a year uh, from th throughout the United States. I'm sorry it doesn't go into Canada, but um, it's just people who basically just got on the phone and called us or sent us an email and said, I'm interested in growing Kernza. And um, a few years before this, this was me taking all these phone calls. And I was trying to be a plant breeder and I was being inundated by people wanting to, to start working with and experimenting with the crop. Um, so now we have a bit of a process set up and uh, I'll share the website, kernza.org with you later, but um, you can go on and get information about how to grow and um, try to have an organized process by which we help the people who might succeed the most to, to get started, um, caution people when we, when we need to, um, and, and just try to make sure that there's more successes than failures and, and people are having a good shot at making a go of it. Um, I'm going to give you a little analogy about how I see um, uh, currents of production has been unfolding and what it's, what it's a, a bit like. I've been uh, searching for uh, think, ways to think about it. And one that I've, I've come up with is really the story of flight um, and, and how uh, flight developed uh, as an invention and then eventually became a technology we all know and trust and how long that took. So I've got a few pictures just for the fun of it, right? So the Wright brothers in 1903 um, flew their first plane about 35 feet. Um, and uh, that proved that it could be done. And, and I feel like with my breeding program, I'll show you some data. We, we're showing that we can definitely um, grow this crop and we can definitely uh, increase the yields and, and find ways to do this. So um, it is a feasible project. The question is how long is it gonna to take to get there and what's gonna be happening in the meantime? Well, we look at flight, a lot of weird stuff happened in the meantime. So this is 1907, brilliant idea of an airplane, um, more wings to make it fly better, didn't work out so well. Um, more wings in the water, um, even bigger wings, uh, lots and lots of wings on an old tractor it looked like. Um, and I love this one, so um, ginormous, uh, Supposed to be the, uh, this guy Caproni invested a whole lot of money in this project in 1921. This was gonna be the thing that was gonna work. Um, it flew for a little while and then blew apart into pieces. 
Um, and after that, this guy said, so the fruit of years of work and aircraft that was to form the basis of future aviation, all is lost in a moment. We must not be shocked. We want to prog progress though. The path of progress is strewn with suffering. And uh, I often feel like that's the case. <laughs> and so I don't want to be overly sober here, but uh, when a farmer tries something they've never grown before, things are going to go wrong and, and things have been going wrong for people but we want to make sure that things go right an awful lot of the time as well and we mitigate um, the times when, when things go wrong just to to really make it sober i like to put up this picture um, so so many people are trying to fly airplanes already and before 1912 this is how many people died just in france trying to fly an airplane um, so people are so excited about it. And I often feel this is the way the enthusiasm can go for new crops. People can get really excited. Um, there are stories when I was a kid about um, Jerusalem artichokes being a thing and everyone lost money on that. And um, then people were gonna grow uh, milkweed and make a lot of money on that. And that was a huge disaster. And then people were gonna grow echinacea and that was a disaster. And so people get really excited about a new crop, um, risk everything or risk too much on it. And then, you know, it goes down in flames and, and it's a bad story that we you know, tell our grandkids about. And so it's essential for us that we don't end that way. We, we, we don't want it to be a disaster. We, we want um, a great uh, story. And we, we feel that because it's so important that a perennial crop can succeed, we need to be the, the kind of the stewards of this, this crop and make sure that it proceeds carefully. Um, and we have you know, the proper things in place before people just uh, run off with it. So um, results uh, in us sometimes saying, you know, well, we don't, we think we should, you should wait for two or three years, or we think that you should plant smaller or differently or whatever. So um, we're trying to, to make sure that we put some guardrails on the whole system um, uh, and can hopefully make success happen for people. Um, so how does currency compare to that the aviation? Um, I've got a few points just to put up that when you make something really new, um, the old ways are always gonna be easier for a while. I mean, it's gonna be a lot easier to grow wheat for a long time. Uh, that doesn't mean that someday currency growing is not gonna be easier. Uh, I think it will be, it will be better, but it's gonna, it's gonna take decades as um, aviation took decades to become better than going in a boat. Um, we need risk takers who are willing to experiment. Uh, we need to prepare for that things not going right though at times. And we have to make sure that we have the proper things in place. Um, I really hope we can protect those risk takers so we can uh, provide some help to them in, in certain ways so that they don't lose everything um, just on their own, that uh, buyers uh, share in some of that risk, for instance. Um, we're gonna have to try a lot of crazy ideas. Like this, this is not just wheat uh, 2.0 and it's not just uh, a pasture. It's something very different. And um, you know, people are trying crazy stuff with those, with those new airplanes and uh, they look crazy to us looking back, but um, at the time, no one knew better. And so similarly now, I, I'm, I'm excited when farmers say, well, what if I try doing this? Um, and I say, hey, that's, that's a good thing to try. I, I don't know the answer. They're, so we actually have, you know, researchers are way behind uh, on this. We, we don't know the, the right answers often. If you come to me for, with a question, I'm going to say, go ahead and try it because I don't know for sure. Um, and I love this quote. I was on your web, the website of uh, Grow and said GROW is a nonprofit applied research association based um, in Alberta that we make mistakes so that you, the farmer, don't have to. I mean, that's just perfect. Um, that's 
what we're often trying to do at the Land Institute as well. So to, to work with researchers to, to, to make some of these mistakes in, in experimental uh, fields that we can learn from each other and bring some answers to farmers uh, that, that need them. So a little bit about the breeding work, because um, I am a, a plant breeder here. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about what I'm doing and how, why we think it's going to work. Um, so we just take a wild plant and we do lots of cycles of breeding. It's just basically like nature developed wheat um, from wild weeds, uh, but we do it more directed. So that took thousands of years. But by making selections, um, we believe we can do it a lot faster. Uh, you basically take the good ones, intermate them, and uh, do that over and over and over. And in you know, some generations, it's going to become domesticated, is our theory. Is that working? Amazingly, um, it is. And even for something like non-shattering, so a classic domestication trait is that you want the seed to stay in the head so you can come by and cut it off and harvest it. If it's all on the ground, that's just a wild plant disseminating its seed. And so on the left here, you see a plant that I just took that um, these heads, tapped them on the table a couple of times, and you got all these seeds that come off. So um, that's what you'll see with wild grasses, right? If if you are, um, you know, grasses in the ditches or grasses in um, prairies or, or even in your pasture, um, the seed's going to fall out when it's ripe. And we have plants now that basically hold all the seed. And I did the same thing with this one, whacked it on the table, and all the seed stays in the head. So I've been able to just in 15 years get plants that are very strongly shatter resistant just by selecting for it. Um, very amazing to me. Um, seed size and something that looks grainy. Um, here's wild intermediate wheatgrass and this is uh, some of the result after time it actually making big seeds that are um, coming out of the head like you would see in a wheat plant, mind you, much, much smaller. So um, it's a much more slender head. So over time, um, this is by breeding cycles. This is like the process of picking plants, intermating them and going back to the field. Um, some of these cycles took a lot longer. So the first ones they were spending like five years per cycle. Then I spent three and then I spent two and now I'm down to one year per, per cycle using advanced methods I'll show you. But um, this is just the change from the starting. So um, you see that we're dramatically increasing uh, grain yield. This is kilograms per hectare. I don't know if Canadians actually like kilograms per hectare, but uh, scientists do. And it's roughly equivalent to Fountain Spraker. Um, and shatter uh, rating going down, as I showed you, um, the percent naked seeds. This is seed actually coming out of those holes. So in the wild state, it's, it's held in the hole like barley or, or oats. And I want it to, to come out freely so that farmers aren't having to try to truck all that, that hole material uh, to the mill because it's very fluffy and light. and um, wasting a lot of energy, it's also very hard to clean. So we're gonna make them clean uh, threshing like, like wheat. Um, and this is change in seed mass over time as well. So all of these things are, you can see are responding nicely um, uh, over time. I'm gonna show you some numbers that, that will actually show you um, how quickly that is changing uh, relative to where we started from. Um, this for example, um, grain yield. So this is in, kilograms per hectare. So if you know how that approximates to bushels, that's a really low yield. So 228 is, is very, very low. But um, we're increasing by about 58 pounds per cycle, or 58 kilograms per hectare per cycle, um, sort of a bushel per, per acre per cycle. Um, 
So that that is that's exciting, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about what does that really mean. Um, seed mass uh, going up pretty dramatically. So it started at five milligrams per seed. Uh, wheat would be like thirty or more. So shows you how far we have to go. Um, we've uh, increased that by uh, seventy five percent. So that's that's promising. Reduced shattering. Um, various traits. So things are basically moving in the right direction. Uh, what does that mean in terms of how much longer we have to go to something that's really wheat-like? 100% um, free threshing, uh, extrapolating this, about four more cycles. And I think I'll have populations that are pretty well settled on free threshing. Um, and we have plants that are 100% free threshing, just not whole groups of them. Um, Zero shattering, you know, about 12 more, so maybe 12 more years. Um, if we assume that, like wheat, um, about 30% of the yield increase ha happened in Kansas wheat was actually recently through better management, 70% from breeding. So if we figure that breeding's got to do the same thing here, it's going to take me another 23 years to get yields up to uh, what wheat yields are currently in Kansas. So that's, that's sobering. I hope I can do better than that, in fact, with, with some better tricks even yet. But that's that's uh, reasonable. It's a lot better than, say, uh, a thousand years with wheat. So um, it's amazing how fast we can go uh, relative to, to wild domestication uh, happening the first time around. But it is true that this is a, it shows you why new crops haven't usually worked out well. You got to stick with it for, for decades. It's not a quick fix. You, we want to have good yields we got to work on it hard and seriously for, for years and years. And um, we need partners to understand that, whether those are, you know, big buyers like General Mills or um, other uh, funding organizations. People have to understand that it's going to take a few decades to get there. Not too bad, though, considering I've already been working on it since about 2001. Um, and then kernel mass, similar to wheat, so seed size, uh, more like 40 cycles. So. Seed size maybe take a little longer, but it's probably not necessary to have exactly the same seed size either. Okay, so how am I going to speed up? Um, how are we speeding up? Uh, normally with a perennial plant, you think, okay, it's going to take five years to evaluate this plant in the field maybe, or four years, it's a perennial plant, and then we're going to make selections. It's going to take a lot of time to do breeding, and that's why perennial breeding is always going to be slow. Um, cool thing about uh, the modern genetics is that we've, we've sequenced the genome of this species, um, and we can use genetic tools. I'm going to put up this uh, kind of shortcut here, 23andMe for plants, is essentially what it is. Um, a little DNA test. And as you can go in and you know, swab your cheek or spit in a, in a vial, and, and you can get uh, an answer on what your eye color likely is and how tall you probably are and what diseases you might get and who your relatives might be, do the same exact thing for plants. So Every one of these plants, you see a little barcode on it. I take a little leaf off of there and then sequence that DNA. And then we um, use knowledge about those plants in the field, uh, the, the relatives in the field, as you'd see in this next picture. You actually have to grow a lot of plants in the field, collect a lot of data by hand like this. Uh, but then you go back and apply that data in a statistical model. We use supercomputers to do this. And you can predict each one of these uh, little seedlings and say who's going to have the biggest yield or the biggest seed or the best uh, free threshing ability when you grow up into an adult. Um, so in only six weeks, we have our answer about what 
what plant is what plants are the best out of these we can throw the rest away or put them out in the field to evaluate them and now we have a perennial breeding program where we can have a cycle every year i'd love to get it down to two cycles a year and then we could you know really cut down the time required to, to bring high yields to the field so that's that's the approach to acceleration, my main approach to acceleration. I've got a second approach, which is uh, we've already got great genes in wheat. Um, could we introgress or introduce those genes from wheat? Um, so we got wild plants here that they're small seed, they're tall, they're shattering. Uh, we can do these breeding cycles, like I said, with domestication, but wheat already has those genes. And this is actually fairly close relative to wheat. We can make a cross between the two. Um, it's a little bit of a genetic mess. They're, they turn into mules, um, but plants, that's not the end of the line. We can, we can kind of recover them, as I'll show you. And hopefully we can get a trait like, say, shortness um, out of wheat. Uh, so semi-dwarf gene is, you know, they're well known in wheat. Maybe we can introduce that kind of gene uh, in through this crossing method. And so, um, as I said, they're, they turn into mules. You got to you got to make crosses that you have to rescue. So you take the seed out, you extract the tiny little growing seed out of the um, part out of the seed, put them on a growth media like I did here. Um, lots of tedious work. And eventually I get plants that are can make some seed, but they're still really sterile. You see like one seed on a whole head. Um, and then a few more generations. And eventually we've gotten to plants like this. This is never mind the details, but these are all the wheatgrass chromosomes that are. 42 wheatgrass chromosomes, and we're using Durham wheat, so it's got 28, and it's got one Durham wheat chromosomes. It's lost all the rest of them, and it's got intermediate wheatgrass. So example of what, what I've been able to achieve here is to get actually um, plants that are intermediate wheatgrass. They're currents of plants, but they have uh, a whole series of them, all with one different wheat chromosome added to them. And I'm going to start studying those in the field and see what one wheat chromosome will do, or little bits of chromosomes. So we'll try to integress uh, small parts if we could actually get down to just getting the, the semi-dwarf gene or just getting a, a seed plumpness gene. Um, that would really be awesome. So trying some wheat shortcuts here is uh, basically what this is about. And then the, the highest tech method yet, um, doing with a collaboration with some folks in Denmark. Um, and this is yeah, it's, it's, it's what's in the news all the time these days, uh, Science Magazine about sequencing wheat and what we can do with that, um, getting that gene sequence and then doing genome editing. So CRISPR, Cas9, these hot, you know, hot topics in the news. Um, it's been worked out a lot better in animals than in plants, but it's going to get there someday. And so um, I don't know how soon it's going to happen. I think pretty soon um, it will be feasible to, to look at uh, wheat, and we can say, here's the, the gene in wheat that causes you know, this trait that we're interested in, whether it's free threshing or shattering, whatever. And um, we can, instead of having to make a cross or, or select in the wheatgrass, we will just take those that same gene, because pretty much they're the same genes. If you know we've sequenced the genome of intermediate wheatgrass, a lot of the genes are exactly the same gene. They're just different forms of them. There's slightly different modifications of the genes. And so if we know what made wheat domestic, we can just go and make that same change, edit out that DNA slightly and turn it into the wheat version and hopefully get the wheat function. So that's all a lot harder than it sounds. Um, so we got this project started in Denmark and they're, they're gonna try to get that method working of, of making those changes and then try to change some genes that we know from wheat 
and see if we can get that uh, to actually function. So um, that would be super fast if it worked, but it might be a super long time to get it to be super fast. <laughs> so uh, we don't know if it's a shortcut yet or not. Okay. So I've talked fast and covered a lot of territory. Um, I encourage you, if you want to learn more about our work, um, you can go to currency.org. There's, there's tabs on there for if you want to be a grower or if you want to be a, uh, a processor or just learn more. Um, and then also the Land Institute's website, also more about us. Um, and you, you can, I'm sure you can dig in there, but I would love to answer any questions y'all might have if you have time. Okay, that was a fantastic presentation. Thank you very much. Um, so we do have questions coming in. The first one is from Josh Smith. I wanted to hear again about nitrogen. You said 50% of nitrogen runs off. Is this all across industrial ag across the globe or usage or more specific to more specific areas? Yeah, so 50% loss in cropping systems is, is a Pretty common across the globe. There's been some nice reviews. You know, some places it's a little bit better, some places a little bit worse. Um, so, um, but that's kind of the global average for annual grain crops. And um, how it's lost varies as well. So, some places have a lot of rainfall. A lot of it's most of it's going to be through leaching into the ground or surface water. And then um, other places there might be more lost uh, into air or even to, to blowing um, from from the system. But uh, the, the drier your environment is, the more efficient it can be. So, so wheat production systems are better than 50%. So they, they lose less than 50% in, in general. A drier wheat system are much less loss than um, corn or, or wheat in the higher rainfall areas. Awesome. Um, the next question that we had was about grazing Kernza. Um, the question comes from Larry Holcomb. And he's in North Georgia, so he's wondering if it's too warm there. What what temperatures does Kernza like? Uh, is this Georgia, United States? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So we we've had a few people plant to the south, but so this this plant comes from kind of the higher elevation regions, uh, drier higher elevation regions. So if we were to look at a part of the U.S. that's most similar, it's kind of the intermountain region. Um, you know, Colorado and Utah and some of those places. And that's where you see it naturalize. It just grows on the ditches because it really fits in well there. It's a, a pretty flexible plant, which it has allowed it to you know, become a grain crop candidate and that you can kind of grow it in a lot of different places because you know we want to be able to not have crops that are so finicky, they only grow in one place. Um, as we've moved corn all over the planet and wheat all over the planet, um, it seems like it can be moved to many different places. Um, so we've had people try it in the South. I don't think it's the best fit. So um, this is kind of the question of where do we grow first? And um, we're trying to find the, those places where it's going to be the easiest to hopefully get some early wins instead of sort of in the hard, hardest places. But there is so much enthusiasm and we want people to learn. So we, you know, we encourage people, to, especially researchers, to try it. Um, in the east, so there's quite a bit of New York, and um, that, all that work with Rodale was done in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, there, there was a planting in North Carolina, I think, so there is a little bit in the south, um, but I, generally north and high elevation tends to be a just a little bit better fit, we think. 
Great, thank you. Um, the next question we have is from Craig Colgrave. How does it do interseeded with other grazing grasses? Uh, so I'm not a, I'm, I, I did my PhD in, in forage agronomy, but obviously I've, I've gone in a different direction. So uh, I don't keep up on, on the, the, the forage side as well for intermediate wheatgrass. Um, but asking about interplanting is a um, is a good one. I, I can say, um, as a forage grass in the United States, um, people like to introduce it because it didn't outcompete everything else. So it wasn't a real invasive. Although it's not native, it was not invasive. So um, people were pretty comfortable planting in a lot of areas. Um, it does tend to decrease over time. So it's it's uh, if it's grazed heavily, you're going to lose it rather than having it take over. Um, the Intercropping question is most interesting to us relative to growing it with um, something that might fix nitrogen. So um, you saw those pictures about how much forage is being produced often and, and then a grain crop as well as that. Um, we're taking a lot of nitrogen off of that field. Um, huge amounts of nitrogen are coming off the field and that has to be replaced. And you also have a big root system and that as that root system builds soil organic matter, nitrogen also gets sequestered along with carbon. So uh, when you make organic matter, it has to have carbon plus lots of other stuff in it. It's not just pure carbon. Um, and so nitrogen is gonna get, be immobilized in your system. And we see is um, just a pure stand is gonna be nitrogen limited very quickly and nitrogen is very expensive. So even if you're not losing it out of your system, if you have to add a lot just to keep it um, happy over time and productive, that's gonna get expensive. So um, we've been looking at intercropping with legumes as the nitrogen source, um, alfalfa, clovers, trefoil, um, things like this. We haven't found a real winner of a system yet. Um, we've had some, some things that are promising and um, what we have are trying right now is, is to develop actually a new kind of machine that would allow us to grow narrow strips of uh, grass and legumes and you could mow out the legume um, early on when it's before it's mature. So um, keep it from competing with the grass and also induce it. So when you when you cut it, a legume and stress it, it's gonna lose it some roots and that's gonna lose nitrogen to the, to the grass. So there might be a way to induce that nitrogen release to the crop when it's needed, reduce the competition um, and also harvest that legume as a prime forage at the right time instead of waiting till it's too late. So um, there's a lot of idea. Like I said, it's, this is as crazy as putting 20 wings on an airplane what we got to try and something's going to work, but it's, we got to try a lot of stuff. So would you say that would work then to graze those legumes instead of just cutting them down? Would that work with the, in the same method, same way? Yeah. So in the spring and fall, definitely. Um, but then what, what we end up with is the summer where you have this longer period where the grass has to grow to maturity and it's kind of a late grass. So um, in Minnesota, they're, they're not harvesting until August. So that's, that's really late. By that time, the legumes have lost all their quality. Um, you can cut it then and get some regrowth in the fall. And if you're here, you've got a lot of time for regrowth because we harvest in July. And so that's a lot of regrowth to graze in the fall. And um, farmers take that, that harvest of forage after the, the combine harvest of the grain, bale up that residue, and then graze again in the fall and or the spring. Um, that, that's been yeah, worked out well and experimentally we should have shown that it works out well to, to graze at least in the fall and you can you know it's, it's kind of like I don't know if people do this where you are but um, we grow winter wheat around here in 
farmers stock that winter wheat over the winter and, and graze on the winter wheat. You can do that with, with the intermediate wheatgrass, but the productivity is two or three times more than, than winter wheat would be. So a lot more productive for uh, fall winter grazing. That's fantastic. Um, the next question we have up is from Steve Kenyon. Lee, what about a perennial wheat and your perennial legume grains mixed as a polyculture? Oh, that's what you were just talking about. Never mind. Well, so, well he's asking another question about perennial wheat. Um, I mentioned it. I would say that uh, a perennial wheat program is kind of like um, this domestication is kind of like investing. You can see these graphs where I show you very nice. Things are increasing over time. Um, and you know the trajectory you're on, and you can just keep on doing better and better. Uh, developing wheat by water hybridization is a little bit more like gambling, and you don't know what's going to come up every year. It, it's creating something kind of new from scratch, and so it's it's uh, it's not quite as a clear trajectory. It's but we're you expect breakthroughs, and we're, we're having some breakthroughs right now, and, and we think we're going to get there um, in the coming years to have a wheat that it's going to have um, probably going to be a Durham wheat with intermediate wheatgrass, kind of all the chromosomes combined into one plant, but it looks a lot like wheat, uh, a little bit like wheatgrass, and it has a seed size more like wheat and yield around wheat yields. Um, so that, that's kind of our, our target. Um, grain legumes are a lot farther off. Um, the one that we're most excited about as a, as a grain legume is actually sainfoin. Um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with growing sainfoin, but uh, it's an edible uh, grain from Sainfoin. Um, we're looking at breeding it for a grain and also even working with growers already in uh, like Montana that, that are producing Sainfoin and just seeing how much we can produce and uh, get it registered for use as a, as a grain crop and start to develop the market side of it. Um, and then as we saw with Kearns, like once we got the market going and people were saying, hey, if you grow this, we can, we're willing to buy it, then you can really start to leverage that and get money to support the, the improvement of the crop itself. So um, I think if we can show that St. Foyne's a reasonable grain crop, um, that could be something in the future. That's interesting. It's a very popular uh, crop up here right now, the St. Foyne. Um, our researchers have been working hard on it. so. That's really, really interesting to hear. Uh, you kind of already spoke to if there's fall regrowth after harvest for grazing. So that, that was one of the questions that came up. Um, what would the days of maturity be? Oh, I wish I had a good number to give you. Um, <laughs> sorry, but we have, we have publication, at least one publication where we did uh, the growing heat, growing degree, growing degree day heat units. Um, to maturity, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, um, but here, uh, central Kansas, we, we harvest wheat about um, mid-June to late June, and we harvest uh, kerns about one month after that, if it gives you some idea. So that's that's winter wheat. Um, if you were growing spring wheat, it'd probably be about the same timing as spring wheat, but we can't grow spring wheat here because it gets too hot. You couldn't see it, but Sandeep was giggling at <laughs> you saying that you guys are able to harvest at that time. <laughs> yeah, it's um, a little early for you. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is it for questions. Is there anybody else? If you want to throw a question into chat quickly, I think we still have a, a couple of minutes here. Um, 
what has the adventure been like do you get a lot of people asking a lot of questions lee about kernza and like what's yeah what's sort of the the word on the street about it like are people pretty excited about this yeah the the excitement has been amazing as you know i, I I've, as the plant breeder, spend more of my time trying to calm people down than I am to, you know, to get them excited. Um, as you saw from my depressing slides about people dying, um, I, I like to give people the, the dose of reality as much as possible. Um, so the, the hope is tremendous, but uh, it's not like a magic silver, silver bullet. It's maybe a silver bullet someday, but it's, it's, it's going to be a hard work to, to get there. So um, definitely uh, it it's, it, you know, getting the staying power is what we've been worried about. We don't want it to be a flash in the pan that people get too much enthusiasm and then they, they don't carry through, right? And that's what's always happened with the, these new crops in the past. Um, what's amazed me is um, working with some like industry collaborators, such as I mentioned General Mills, they've financially supported this work for quite a few years now and um, have made a, a box of cereal. Um, I could reach over and pull my box down and show you uh, a test batch of, of cereal. Um, but the fact that things haven't always gone well and it's taking maybe longer than they hoped and yet they're not dropping, they're, they're sticking with us over uh, years and years of saying, hey, as soon as we get productivity, we're, we're excited to make the first products. Um, you know, this year has been a little bit weird because up to this point, we've always had way more demand than we've ever had production. We've always had people saying, you know, where can we, where can we buy it? Where can we buy it? And there was no, never a good enough supply. Um, and then what happened this year is that uh, with the pandemic, um, the conventional wisdom was that uh, consumers never try anything new in a time of stress. They want to go back to their old favorites. And so every company said, we're not introducing any new products. Like all their new product plans went away and they pulled back to just their core um, stuff and no one wanted to make anything new. So that was weird um, for us. But I, I mean, I think that those companies really misjudged it because actually people were sitting at home and they all wanted to try baking and they wanted to buy a new kind of flour. And so, um, you know, make, making available, making a YouTube video on how to, how to bake would, would I think work just as well. And so um, that's where we have these, uh, a small company in Minnesota now that is, retailing um, small packages of flour. And there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for that. So it's a whole different angle than a commercial beer, which you know, is kind of a large investment up front. And you know, one of our, you know, our concerns about having uh, the long root ales being the first and only product that at that time was that that wasn't a diversified market. And the farmers that were growing at that point said, you know, we want to be able to have at least five or 10 places to sell to. We don't want one market only. And so. Um, Having a lot of different kinds of markets, some of them being people growing, you know, making local noodles, some people making a local beer, some people making a national beer, some people um, retailing flour on Amazon. So getting a lot of that stuff started. So when there's production, it can go, but it has to be kind of flexible production. So uh, because it's so uncertain, if if things don't go well, we only have a few thousand acres. You know, you're quite vulnerable. Instead of having a million acres, things can go wrong on half of them, and you still have a good a good yield. Um, we're much more vulnerable as a very small startup. So that's been an interesting project or process to go through. But um, just because people see that, you know, many of the buyers want to, they, they really see the soil quality side, they want to improve soil quality and they want to 
tell the, the story about sequestering soil carbon and having a, a product that helps mitigate climate change um, and give stability to climate change by making soil better. Um, those things um, really make the, the retailers stick with us. That definitely makes sense for sure. Um, we have time for one more question. So this one's from Ward Middleton. He's one of our local organic farmers here. Um, if you're constantly making selections each generation, is it fair to say you are already not working with what we now call Kernza? How many generations are you beyond Kernza? <laughs> yeah, so I'll clarify what the name of Kernza means. So Kernza is the mar marketing name that we apply to this. So um, we, we trademarked that name uh, to try to make sure that no one would uh, put the name on some rye or some barley flour or something and, and to start uh basically stealing from growers who are actually growing the real thing. So we control the, the name uh, so that whatever the Land Institute says qualifies as Kernza is Kernza. So you know, we say it is grain of intermediate wheatgrass and it has to meet a few other requirements. So growing um, some of the uh, seed lots of certain varieties, the University of Minnesota has released a variety and that uh, can be grown to produce Kernza. Um, you have to have a relationship with us so that we know that you're actually a grower, you're selling it. Um, so that some of those legal pieces in place, um, if those things are all met, then it's Kernza and that, that's going to be uh, what, what it's going to be called forever, even if the yield is three times higher than it is today. Um, so it's not about the, the, the plant being a certain way, it's about um, recognizing um, this crop as being kind of the, uh, a certified version of a perennial grain um, and and communicating that to uh, buyers and to re uh, retailers and um, consumers of, of those products that everyone kind of understands what the story is um, about this crop. Um, but yeah, the, the breeding program is always a long ways ahead of what farmers have available because right, it takes you know five years to get the seed bulked up from my best selection. So yeah, what farmers have is not near as good um, as what I have in my, my fields right now. So that's a, just unfortunate the way it always is. Um, it's especially in the case, you know, wheat breeding in Kansas, we're really happy if we get a half of a 1% of a yield increase uh, per year. So and I, and I'm getting, you know, vastly more increase. So the, the, having slightly old seed in Kernza is really a problem. <laughs> Our farmers really want to have the latest, right? Because it's actually a lot, lot better um, than stuff from three years ago. Whereas wheat varieties, you know, it takes them a decade to go out of style. So that's definitely a, a thing. And, and I'm trying desperately to get the seed from my breeding program to the farmer as fast as possible, increasing the seed as quickly as possible, and then hopefully getting it out there. That's really interesting. I thank you so much for joining us. Um, right. It was fantastic to hear from you. We, we don't hear a lot about perennial grains yet, and hopefully we'll be hearing more in the future.